mindfulness uh, and giving every opportunity for for practice uh, the retreat center is a very well set up place for establishing uh, the kind of um, conditions uh, that uh, help to where we don't have to do anything but practice and then those of you who are on this retreat, see the results of being left to yourself, having to sit still for a long time and not speak and be silent and look inward. Now, even though uh, it's easy enough to talk about this, the actual realities of it is quite challenging because the nature of the mind is to wander. Like the the mental conditions, the sanya, sankara, uh, this is, the, you know, the, the, the thinking process, the ability to remember, uh, is, uh, you know, if not checked, if having, having no boundaries, but just uh, identified with and followed, then it just wanders, just in, you know, proliferates endlessly. And I remember reading uh, Nyanananda's book years ago in Thailand where conceptual concept and reality and he talks about he used the word Pali word papancha which is a word we now I never heard before Pali word which means he translated it as conceptual proliferation and this uh, particular word seemed to be pretty much my what, what I did all the time just endlessly kind of uh, internal you know whether there was talking externally or internally the mind was nattering away and this was uh, you know how to stop this how to how to uh, be able to Free oneself from this uh, from this kind of obsession, obsessive thinking, and it would, you know, as you get older and your mind just repeats the same, like some kind of really ridiculous thoughts over and over again, or little ditties that you learned when you were a child, or pop music of the forties suddenly spring up, and and, and you find yourself. You know, telling yourself the same jokes that you, little puns that you learned when you were ten years old, and, and the mind natters on like that, because that's its nature. You know, thinking itself is is uh, one thought connects to another. You know, so you you start with something. You know, you start with. Uh, uh, 
isn't the weather nice and then then the then the proliferation comes from that and uh, we can find ourselves talking about the weather in England and then compare it to the weather in France and soon you're in Thailand and then, and then you're somehow talking about something not totally unrelated to the weather so this uh, papancha is uh, I think we all, you know, you can all relate to this because we 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 are people now, educated people who've been exposed to endless information uh, and various like pop culture and and uh, fads and fashions and gossip and all the the whole range of things that just keep the mind busy. And why do we like to gossip? What is it about gossiping, talking about other people? Uh, it's just something to talk about, isn't it? And especially when they're not there and you don't want to talk about yourself. And then, and then it's easy to, to get interested in who's going with who and who's doing what with who. <laughs> and uh, and then we tend to project our, we have our own views and opinions and... and uh, our psychobabble, you know, we've all got developed this, these uh, modern psychotherapy terms that we can discuss people's needs and desires and and problems and so forth as if we were, you know, real uh, real authorities. Views and opinions. This is something that that. Uh, one needs to to recognize what that is. Like uh, being uh, from my background, uh, from the United States, where we, at least my generation, haven't lived there for so many years. I don't know what goes on there really now. But um, when I lived there, was the idea of you had to have an opinion. Then it was you were really a nobody if you didn't. You know, you have opinions about everything, even things you didn't know about. You, you had to have some position on, and so this was this was social intercourse, where you you go to parties and you you voice your opinions and views about various things. <laughs> not really know what you're talking about in the first place. And so I remember becoming a monk in Thailand, in uh, where. The, the culture isn't so opinionated uh, where the, that isn't kind of a demand made on you and and hearing myself you know being able to hear myself with the various opinions the tendency to form opinions wanting to to have an opinion or feeling obliged to have opinions about Buddhism or meditation or Thai culture or Whatever it would, it would all go toward uh, having something, some, some position that I'm taking on this particular issue. When I talk about the inner listening, then I began to listen to, to this, this uh, tendency to form opinions, have opinions and views, and. And of course, when you're, you know, I started out, my interest in Buddhism originally was with uh, Japanese Zen Buddhism. And when you, in, back in the 1950s, so, so then the, the kind of Zen movement in California at that time was, uh, you, you'd read, there were certain books associated with this that, that were available. There were not all that many books in English at the time you know, on, in, on Buddhism. And uh, Zen had become quite fashionable in the Bay Area, San Francisco area at that time, mid-1950s. So uh, you're reading Alan Watts, D.T. Suzuki, and and uh, these were the, the kind of authorities on Zen Buddhism. And then Aldous Huxley had written a book on the doors of perception and 
this was all his experiences taking masculine and then <laughs> and he also wrote another book on on philosophy in which he he actually said something to the effect that the Theravada Buddhism uh, was uh, hadn't produced any enlightened being since the since the Buddha himself and and completely kind of dismissed Theravada as a kind of conservative uh, form of Buddhism that had no heart or soul to it and and went on quoting uh, Mahayana so since uh, since this was my only uh, contact I, at that time I just put put aside the idea of Theravada I think well, it sounds really boring and nothing I'm interested in and, and my of course my my fascination was toward the Mahayana well that was an opinion in view isn't it where where you know you read somebody's view of what what this particular religion is about and that that influenced me to to not that I held the view particularly but I was influenced by somebody as uh, uh, as important and famous as Aldous Huxley So then, um, finding myself in uh, in Southeast Asia in 1964 uh, in the Peace Corps, American Peace Corps in uh, Malaysia, and uh, in uh, the Theravadan area of the world in Southeast Asia. So, so I decided, well, as long as I'm here, might as well uh, see what what they have to offer. So, so went, went on a holiday to Thailand and Cambodia, 1960, end of 1964, and uh, really became quite uh, in, uh, enchanted by by the uh, kind of idea of bhikkhus and and uh, the I like the I like the culture. And uh, I certainly preferred the climate to what I remembered of Japan when, when I was in the Navy. Because in the winter time, it was very cold there, I remember. And the, and then I heard they didn't heat their monasteries. And so uh, I thought, well, it's being the kind of person I like to feel nice and warm. I thought, Thailand, nice warm country. <laughs> so I'll try, see if Theravada can, at least I can practice meditation in warmth which was more attractive at that time then the as I began to practice meditation starting in, in uh, Bangkok at Wat Mahathat I, I did as a lay person I would go every uh, I was teaching English at a uh, university in Bangkok, and then uh, it was very near Wat Mahathat, and I'd teach in the morning and afternoon. I'd go into the the uh, Buddhist monastery and and practice meditation. And I began to see very much that that uh, you know the the kind of um, of a basis that I was being given was very essential, such as um, just the basic techniques of meditation which I never meditated uh, in the Zen tradition at all I'd only it was merely an intellectual experience and also having been uh, entranced with Krishnamurti's works when I was in the university but leaving me nothing to start with you know it's like being inspired by these teachings but not knowing what how, what to do in any practical way so just uh, sitting down and watching my breath was was a beginning, something kind of basic and simple. And, and uh, from there, toward as I d- developed and began to to appreciate that, then the interest in becoming a monk arose. In Bangkok in those days, 1966, uh, there were a lot of uh, expatriates living there who were interested in Buddhism. And so we'd have meetings sometimes. You'd meet at the World Fellowship of Buddhists or 
at Wat Bawani Way and other places, and then, uh, and then I was under, then I'd hear this barrage of views and opinions about who's a good teacher and who isn't, and what you've got to do and what you shouldn't do, and and what Thai Buddhism is about, and like. And unfortunately, at this time, nobody had ever heard of Ajahn Chah. He was a he was an unknown in terms of the expatriate world in Bangkok in 1966. I remember, um, you know, starting at, at Wat Mahathat, and uh, the monk, the Thai monk that translated for the teacher couldn't speak English, so they had a, a, a younger monk who was uh, acted as a translator. He started telling me all about the, the kind of... Uh, um, political problems of the Thai Song at that time. They're having this incredible kind of strife between the two sects of Tamayut Mahanikai. And the abbot of Wat Mahathat had been incarcerated in prison. And, uh, and, and telling me all these things that I was quite shocked because at that time I was very idealistic. You know, I thought of Buddhist monks all as arahants and beyond any such scheming, such meanness of heart and uh, such kind of uh, political political scheming as this monk was telling me. So, anyway, I wasn't really interested in that. But um, anyway, I heard my first version of the Tamayut Mahanikai clash was, uh, you know, it was it it kind of shocked me that this would happen because you want you want Buddhism to be a convention that doesn't ever let you down that you found it at last, the one thing on earth in, that will never disappoint you, will always be pure and bright, never be sullied or stooped anything low, but will uh, will fulfill all your ideals. And so then uh, this was the beginning of a slight sense of not as good as I thought. Then, uh, then, I realized that I want to ordain, but I didn't want to live in Bangkok. And, and the expatriate Buddhists were all telling me, the only place that you can really practice is with uh, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu in the south. He's a Zen master, even though he's Theravada. Now, that appealed to me, that he's a Zen master. And he's the only really enlightened Bhikkhu in all of Thailand. This is the gossip of the expats in Bangkok at the time. So, anyway, I decided I'd, I'd go down to Suan Mok for a while. But when I went down to Suan Mok, I was staying at Wat Mahathat at the time, I didn't realize that Wat Mahathat and Suan Mok uh, didn't get on with each other. <laughs> and they're both the same sex. <laughs> so when they found out that I'd gone down to Suan Mok, then my my visa my my they were supporting my visa they they took away their support what my heart taught and I went down to Suan Mok and there were three or four German bhikkhus there and these they they had so many opinions and views that I was totally overwhelmed by that and I, I had one brief interview with Buddhadasa and. And I thought, I don't think I can stand living here. So I left because they were going on about this is the right way and that's no good. <laughs> and uh, being subjected to that, I, I decided I wanted to just live with, without any Western monks. I was going to just seek a monastery where I'd only be with Thai monks. So then uh, I went back to what Mahatat was persona non grata and uh, I moved into the camp of the enemy, Wat Bawoniwait, which is the other sect, the headquarters of the other sect. Moving into Wat Bawoniwait, um, then the monk there proceeded to tell me how horrible Mahanikai is and how, you know, I'm lucky to get out of that. And, uh, and that the only way to practice is through the Tamayud system with Ajahn Mahabua. So, the 
So then uh, I thought, well, that's fine, I'll settle for that. And then Ajahn Mahabhu happened to be visiting one day in Wat Mawani and uh, they took me to see him. And uh, he, uh, anyway, I wasn't very good at all these uh, kind of high, uh, like walking on your knees and, and, and bowing. So I did the best I could, and I noticed he, he seemed to be totally amused by my clumsiness. Then, uh, and then he said, well, uh, if he, uh, he can't, you know, I don't let anybody come to my monastery uh, at first. You have to prove yourself. So uh, then he suggested uh, that I ordain at Watbulwarn and go to some other monastery for the ranger tree. So I, I decided I'd do that. But then, because my visa was no longer sponsored, I got a letter from the immigration saying I have to leave the country. <laughs> so, which means you can re-enter, but in the, there's a, there's a, to stay in Thailand for any length of time was, was very difficult. So, so I had to leave uh, Thailand and I decided I'd go to Laos on a holiday. And I wanted to go to Luang Prabang. And uh, so then uh, the, the royal capital, because I heard it was a very lovely, beautiful city or town, not really a city, but it was the royal capital, and Vientiane was the kind of administrative capital. So anyway, I... Uh, one of the monks at Wat Bawon gave me an address of a Tamayut monk in Vientian, and and I took the train up to uh, the Mekong River, crossed over into Laos, found this monk in in Vientian, and he said, "Oh, there's a there's a meditation monastery uh, here in uh, Vientian, and and uh, there's a Canadian." monk practicing there and he said I think you should go meet him so he took me to meet uh, this Canadian monk his name was Sumino there's a different Sumino than the one you know <laughs> and there's a Canadian Sumino and so he he was he'd been in, in this very uh, kind of, was very kind of strict practice where you go and, and just and for months on end and practice uh, this slow kind of Burmese type of walking and sitting. So when I met him, he looked a bit crazy, actually. <laughs> he seemed a kind of he had a weird vibration. But anyway, uh, we didn't have time to talk very much, but he... He said, well, when you come back to Vientiane, come and see me. So I said, oh, yes. But I had no intention of doing that. So then I flew up to Luang Prabang and spent the delightful week uh, touring and, and enjoying uh, that lovely place. And then it was time to leave. Flew back to Vientiane. And I still had time but before uh, going back to Thailand and I had to wait in Vientiane, so I thought I'll go and visit this Canadian monk, which I did. And during that time, we we sat out on his little porch of his kuti, and we had the most kind of intense conversation. And he told me, con totally convinced me, that the worst thing I could do was to ordain in Tamayut <laughs> and at Wat Bawan, and that the only place to ordain was in Nong Kai, which was across the river, with his with his uh, upachar, who was, the, tanja, who was the, the head monk of the province at that time, who came here to the opening last year. So just because I'd been, you know, who was I to believe, you know? Just, uh, I, I didn't have any strong opinions of my own yet to, to operate from, and just being, uh, from going from one place to another with, you know, each each uh, all these places putting the other ones down, and I knew I didn't want to live in Bangkok, and so I thought, well, 
Nongkai seems like a nice enough place, and uh, I'll take this man's word for it. So I went back to Bangkok, got, got my stuff, told them I was going to spend the Vata in Nongkai, and they were quite distressed by that. Because uh, <laughs> I told them I was going to spend it at Mahanikai Monastery, and went back to Nongkai and became a Samanera. So that, and during that year, the uh, I spent in a monastery uh, just uh, outside of Nongkai where I did this intense retreat for about a year and uh, meditated uh, on, you know, just living very much uh, on my own and um, practicing uh, according to this uh, word of the Buddha. I didn't because there's nobody to, who could teach me anything at this place. Nobody could speak English, so I had I just had this kind of basic training and this one little book which I used. So from just that, I I began to uh, put two and two together, and sometimes get four, sometimes get five, sometimes get six. <laughs> But sometimes you actually come out with the right answer. And anyway, my my faith in the practice increased over that year uh, to the point that I, uh, event, the following year, became a bhikkhu and went to stay with Lung Po Cha. So then in Thailand, I was exposed to these various opinions about the, the forest tradition and the, and the village tradition and the academics and the practicers and uh, the, the town monks and the forest monks and the monks that keep the vinya and the monks that don't keep the vinya and, uh, and all of this. And, and so you... You're, you're being subjected to, you know, very kind of standards, uh, high standards of uh, conduct, and and uh, that are, you know, what certainly one admires. But the but the thing I began to the, to see in my own life was that uh, just uh, this attachment to views sometimes blinded me to the realities of of uh, the actual experiences I was undergoing. Uh, one thing I, I realized, uh, because I brought up with very strict views about the Vinaya, then uh, I had this, then when I went to Bangkok one time, I, had, I was staying in a monastery that where the Vinaya wasn't very strict. And uh, the monks at Wat Bapong told me you should never stay in that monastery uh, because the monks are, you can't trust them and they're impure. So I had this view when I went there, so I didn't know where else to stay. Now I was getting myself in a kind of into a den of iniquity, and I had to really watch myself that I didn't take anything from these monks, uh, that, uh, that I had to make sure that I got my food on alms round and wouldn't take any food from them and, and just kind of live in a state of paranoia uh, hoping that any contact would not uh, contaminate me, and and so at this time I was I was very much uh, kind of holding on to this, you know, trying to protect my purity. And and then uh, I was there for about a week, and I left. And when I left, you know, I began. To, I looked back and I thought, I acted like a real twit. You know, I was really awful. You know. Actually, I went to the monastery, and these monks were very kind to me. You know, they gave me a nice room to live in, and they, they were willing to, you know, give me anything I asked for. And they were very generous and kind, and all I could do was was uh, suspect them of not being pure and, and fear of losing my own purity if I had anything to do with them. And I thought, this, is, this couldn't be right to feel like this. This, this couldn't be what's meant by uh, the Buddhist teaching. I felt really ashamed of myself, I had a sense of real shame, because I, 
and become such a, you know, a, a, a kind of person I didn't want to be at all. Uh, and uh, I didn't like, I didn't like that mental set, that mindset that produced this, this uh, kind of goody goodness and an incredible preciousness of, of my purity above everything else. So I began to just contemplate this, uh, you know, opinions and views. So this was, uh, and to contemplate it wasn't, you know, if I just thought about it, that didn't work. Because, you know, the views were, Vinaya is good, and strict Vinaya is admirable, and you should keep the rules, and and it all, you know, logically, uh, you know, it it holds together. But in terms of behavior and 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 immediacy, uh, what then you have to rely on mindfulness, on awareness. So, so I, instead of trying to to uh, think about it in terms of, you know, that you shouldn't cling to views. Uh, because then you go to the other extreme of holding a view that you shouldn't cling to any views. Uh, I've had enough insight to just contemplate the, 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 what holding views is like as experience. So I, I listen to myself, you know, with this inner listening to my, uh, the voice inside that was uh, full of these views and opinions. And, uh, and, and began to really notice that the actual mindful state had no views and opinions in it. It was empty. And the views and opinions would come and go. So I began to, to recognize the difference where it said this pure state of awareness, there's no view or opinion in it. There's no position. There's nothing, there's, you know, there's nothing in it that that has uh, that's critical, but it's completely aware, and it's aware of the views and opinions uh, that that arise and cease in consciousness. So this is quite a, a valuable insight is to know the difference. Like like say even with emotions, like one can feel anger, and uh, and yet, when you're mindful of the feeling of anger, that, that that which is mindful isn't angry. So anger is like a, a mental object; it it arises and ceases. So just noticing that that if you stay in this place of awareness, this mindfulness, then it's it's very pure. It has no no position, no it has no view. It's not critical. But it is open, and, 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 and but it's not, and it's very intelligent, it's, it's pure intelligence. And, and this is where then wisdom and spontaneity can take place from this, this awareness. Then I could see that also that views and opinions are what they are, but the attachment to them is the real problem. The clinging to views and opinions. So, so then I had this insight, well, views and opinions are all, all right, you know, they are what they are, but attachment to them, meaning identity, my view, my opinion, my, this sense of me and mine in regards to them. And so, beginning to, to see from this position of of awareness, the uh, and beginning to trust in this this pure state of awareness, then I could where I could see the the emotional habits and the views and opinions that would arise in consciousness. Then the question, questioning myself, this: How do you stay in this state of awareness? Because the the views and opinions or the emotions are so overpowering, you know, you can, it's easy to just get, you know, and they're so convincing and the pressures of the world are so 
so compelling and and uh, intimidating that and in one's own you know emotional habit screaming away and and uh, kind of making endless demands and criticisms on everything So, just putting it into practice, you know, developing it, experimenting with it, examining, experience. So that that more and more I, I could see, I could actually prove this to myself, the value of, of just trusting in awareness. And, 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 and even though... Emotionally, they could say, you could say, can you really trust this? Or, you know, you've got to really do something about that. And, and how, you know, you could really, people could wind me up and say, we've got to do something about this. This is a real crisis. This, there's real issues we've got to face. And, and the kind of hysteria, uh, that, uh, that, that kind of tone of hysteria would really, really kind of wind me up. I used to be a monk, I used to go at chitters. I used to, come at me with that tone of voice, really wind me up. Oh, it's tomato, we've got to do something. <laughs> and you go, and I run off on myself. <laughs> and just the, just the, the power of his emotion was, uh, was easily infect me. So, how does one deal with that other than say, trusting in this refuge of awareness? So that developing that over years now, it, then it, it gives, you know, then the 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 uh, having views and opinions or things like that no longer seems uh, anything I'm interested in. That I that I really uh, want to, you know, to, that I need to have any views or opinions about anything. But then, in terms of worldly life, that seems like Ajahn Samael is a pretty kind of dull bloke, isn't he? And doesn't have it. What do you think of the Labour Party? What do you think of New Labour? <laughs> what do you think of the on and on like this? Uh, you know, and I can I can give kind of uh, views and opinions about it, but actually, I don't find this very real for me are very important. Also, it's like like in the Buddhist world or uh, say a Britain where where you have uh, so many different forms of Buddhism and teachers and uh, and the grapevine, the Buddhist grapevine, the international grapevine, the gossip travels all over, you know. It isn't, you know, so something happens in Australia, it doesn't take long to reach Amravati or <laughs> whatever. So, I mean, uh, especially if it's scandalous gossip, <laughs> it travels the fastest. So the, that uh, the, the Buddhist world is full of views and opinions. And the, uh, you know, the Mahayana... Hinayana, Theravada, Vajrayana. Uh, I remember going to, you know, the going to hear the Dalai Lama one day, and he was talking about Vajrayana as the kind of the the ultimate, the kind of top position. And and uh, so then that 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 way of of talking always leaves you with a sense of that you don't that you're somehow in a tradition that isn't at the very best. You know, on an emotional level, you, you, you tend to think, well, you know, he's saying his is the best. But then that's another, you know, that's just another view and opinion. Uh, whether it's the best or not, I don't know, but, but to me, what the, the path isn't about the best, but recognizing the way things are. So, so I began to see by always you know, when when people would proclaim their teacher or their tradition was somehow the best, I could see if I if I grasp that, then then I start, I feel, uh, you know, I'd either want to 
prove that it wasn't or that my tradition was better or or I could doubt maybe maybe my tradition isn't as good as their tradition that kind of thing because that's how the mind works but if you have this uh, trust and awareness then you begin to see that that the real the real the, the practice is around seeing things as they are that the best is just another condition arising and ceasing or the worst or whatever you know these these, these are extremities uh, that point to condition the quality of a condition or it can be a view or an, or an opinion and I realized I didn't have to have the best that that uh, what you know that wasn't the point but how to use what I have in the way I am for mindfulness so that the the path is here and now apparent here and now timeless encouraging investigation uh, leading onwards to be experienced individually by the wise so that's pretty clear that it's not not a matter of of belonging to to an organization that's the best, but in in awakeness and awareness in the, in at here and now, now not in when you join the, the the best form of Buddhism, but even if you know, the form of Buddhism isn't all that great, it's it's what you what you're experiencing now, and that's the the path is is here and now. This, uh, then in uh, Krishnamurti, I remember, we'd go and visit, uh, and Krishnamurti was alive and lived at Chichurst. We'd go and hear Krishnamurti on his, on Sundays, uh, at Brockwood Park in Win- near Winchester. And of course he had views and opinions about, about religion and monks, uh, which he didn't hide in any way. And so then, then he tended to be very disparaging uh, about uh, formal religions and and monks and things like that. Which uh, you know, so he would say things. When I was there one time, he quite insulted us, you know, about being monks. And 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 you could see you have this feeling that all the people that tend to to go to those kind of things uh, were. We're agreeing with him, you know, because we all, suddenly I felt very kind of uh, like I was the object of, of of scorn, because uh, he offered, you know, he, he 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 his way was that you shouldn't you shouldn't have any be bound to any religion, or that he he'd have views about meditation where he'd put, say you shouldn't meditate things like this, so. Just noting that, just being aware of how things affect me, you know, rather than than um, even forming views and opinions about Krishnamurti. Because the you know to to say that uh, say uh, say reli- just to make a categorical rejection of all religion is a very kind of uh, impertinent view. Is my view. Because what it's not you know what and this I began to appreciate with with the um, Buddhist emphasis on on attachment to views and opinion. Like uh, this uh, this always has seemed to me to be the real the real cause of suffering is this um, the, is is upadana or clinging or attachment. Well, the Pali word is upadana. So when we, uh, you notice in the um, teaching of the Four Noble Truths, uh, desire and attachment are the causes of suffering, like in the Second Noble Truth. Attachment to desire out of ignorance is the cause of suffering. So, So this made it clear that even desire is not the cause of suffering. Uh, you know, dunha is not the cause. It says very clearly, 
dana upadana, clinging to desire. So this this began I began to see at first the uh, some the logic uh, of my Western mind was thinking you've got to get rid of desire. You know, so you've you've got to keep the rules and you've got to get rid of all your desires. And and then I began to realize that that was another desire. Desire to get rid of desire. So so that's because Vipavadanha uh, is the desire to get rid of something. So and then, uh, then this contemplating even further suffering, dukkha and dhanha desire began to r- recognize that these are natural to this state we're in. This is a, a the, the experience of dukkha and desire is 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 natural to this realm. Uh, and so it's it's how can you you can't you know you're going to annihilate the wo- the world, blow it up maybe. But just in terms of meditation, how you you can kind of uh, uh, you know blindfold yourself and and uh, and and uh, hypnotize yourself for, that might keep you from experiencing too much desire and suffering for a period of, a short period of time, but you can't sustain it. So then it became apparent that this emphasis on upadana, this clinging and attachment. So in terms of, say, convention, like, say, with Theravada Buddhism, or with the Thai forest tradition, or Vinaya, and all these, these are conventions. It's the clinging out of ignorance that is the cause of suffering. So the conventions are, you know, like when you look at, at our convention, it's, it can be used skillfully with wisdom or it can be just used as a form of attachment, identity and attachment. So when then you experience the suffering. If, if you're a monk or a nun out of, uh, out of uh, ignorance and attachment, then you're going to suffer a lot from this life because uh, it's, uh, it, that, the suffering, it's not, and you maybe suppress your, and then they all kind of explode out later on whatever but <clears throat> as long as you as long as you you just attach to even the vinya to keeping the rules and <clears throat> the discipline and then that in itself will make it uh, a cause of, that will cause suffering and then we we just uh, you know we, we we're either martyrs to our suffering or kind of or we have to just reject it, reject the vinya. Or is there another way to do it? So, so this is where seeing that the the tradition, the conventions, are are helpful for awareness because they give boundary. They give they they offer a boundary and limit to to our lives. That we can work from. If we have no, if we only work from ideals, from the very top, uh, from the best and the ideal, there's no boundary to it, is it? It's, it's not like being just free and and happy and uh, having no restrictions, just having no boundaries, being able to do whatever you feel like and. And just love and be free and be happy. And that sounds very inspiring. But in terms of practice, it's very difficult to operate from that. Because there's no boundary to it. And you don't know where to stop. You just, uh, it, it has, uh, there's no suggestion of even stopping in any place. So what I found in terms of living within the restraint of Vinaya as a as a Buddhist monk, it it is uh, you know it's very it has very clear boundaries and that that gives very clear references. It reflects back my own kind of um, the the fact of my own kind of impulsiveness and uh, 
greed and hatred and so forth that arise, and stubbornness, laziness, uh, rebelliousness, arrogance—all these things are easily reflected in this limit because it, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, the the limit is quite clear. Then then the the re- resistance, the the uh, rebellion, the the views and opinions form. And in that state of awareness, your refuge is in the awareness rather than trying to uh, justify or, uh, you know, or condemn any of the conventions that you're using. So it's it's that immediate, seeing it in terms of here and now, so in in uh, being uh, taking on this convention, then it's part of my conscious experience. It's uh, you know it, I, it, one can think maybe I'm attached to the convention, like, uh, but that's not you know it might look like attachment, but how I try to use this convention isn't through identifying and attaching to it, but through uh, reflecting from it. Because in the long run, what I find now is it gives a very, it makes life very simple for me. At my age and my years in the Sangha, life is just very pleasant and simple. Uh, because I don't, I don't, you know, don't have a lot of uh, problems, uh, you know, or problems around the restrictions that that are that come through the vinya or the tradition. So this, uh, say this is a use uh, of using tradition and and restraint and rules and precepts and ceremonies and uh, so forth. They can, you know, the, these these things can be used. Uh, through ignorance and attachment, because in themselves, they're only conventions. They have no life of their own. <clears throat> you know, they just, they, they, they're, they have no, they have our life only, what life we put into them. But if we just become, you know, end up you becoming institutionalized, then we, we are also pretty dead beings, you know, just going through the motions of, of convention and conformity without any spirit in it is what we call institutionalizing. Or, or we can, you know, this form has, we put our spirit into it, like my attention, my devotion, my interest, using it as, as skillfully as I can. So that, that, and, and when when the other states come up, the boredom, the resistance, the the rebellion, the the critical mind that gets you know that can get very you know can see so many things that you don't particularly like or agree with in your own convention, and you can get make good stand against it. But really, that's not the point. Not not that that that, that I. Just love absolutely everything about Theravada Convention, <laughs> and and agree with everything in it. But it's like uh, it, it is a convention that I'm using, not because uh, because I agree with everything, but everything in it at least it is is something that is you know I feel confident will will that I can use for mindfulness and. Uh, and, and you, you know, and it's based on such noble ideals as non-violence and and uh, uh, renunciation and responsibility. So then, the the empty mind or the the state of pure awareness has no position in the. the there's a one of the man of no fixed position, one of these enigmatic statements. And I remember 
Lumpur Cha sent when I was in London years ago, and, and uh, he he sent a message to me, a kind of conundrum, a koan. He said, "What do you do if you can't go forward, can't go backward, can't go sideways, can't go up, or can't go down? What do you do? Where do you go?" And so that's. <laughs> And so that's, you know, that's, that's the conundrum. If there's no place to go, there's only here and now. So, so this is the, you know, the enlightenment is now, and awareness is now, and uh, deathlessness, uh, amatadhamma, is now. Well, then, then, then there's nothing to do and nowhere to go, is there? And that in itself reflects this restlessness of wanting something to do, wanting to go somewhere else. And it, 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 if you if you use even that, you see how uh, how you know the the, the 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 emotional patterns of restlessness and and uh, just getting bored with being in the same place and and. Uh, being discontented and so forth arise even when you're with the best or with very good people or when you're living with Ajahn Chah. You know, we might think people now say, oh, it wasn't like the days when Lung Po Chah was alive, then everything was, you know, he was a great master. He was a really enlightened being, and but he's dead now and, and gone like that. But I remember... You know, living with Ajahn Chah, and uh, and uh, you know, incredible restlessness. Monks, you know, I remember the second vasa I spent with Ajahn Chah. They had the first vasa. There were only twenty-two monks, and then the next vasa it doubled. There were over, you know, nearly fifty monks. And all these monks suddenly wanted to ordain at Wat Papong. So they were busily making robes for them. They make all the robes there. So they made, you know, these Sangatis are rather, you know, complicated and difficult to make. They were busily making Sangatis, all the monks busy sewing, and the Chivaras and the Sangatis and the Sabongs and had the Upasampada and all these monks, 40 or so monks sitting there. And then the End of the Vasa, they disrobed. <laughs> oh, almost all of the ones, the newly ordained ones, only did it for the Vasa. So, so I remember sitting there with Lung Po Cha as, as these monks would come and kind of sheepishly ask to disrobe. And, and they had, uh, they already had the, the tailors make they wanted uh, lay, layman's clothes, you know. They had all their parents get them tailor-made kind of trousers and so forth. And they all had had this in mind. And I remember Lumpur Cha turning to me one night. And he said, "Well, Samantha," he said, "Let them all disrobe, and and you and I will just stay here." And I, I thought, no, I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> Have Ajahn Chah to myself. <laughs> but, but that didn't happen. I mean, even though after the uh, uh, after that Vasa, then of course the, the thing, you know, then Lung Po Cha became more strict about who he did, who he would accept after that because they, he didn't want to accept monks who were just temporary, uh, taking it in a temporary way. But I find this 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 spaciousness of, of learning to to recognize, like those on retreat now, uh, you know, to to be able to to reflect, I mean, to notice this this state of pure awareness and the objects that you're aware of, like like really notice that, like when you really look at emotional 
your emotions as they arise during this retreat. Uh, if you think about your emotions, you just get tangled up in it and in the pro- proliferation around me and my feelings. But but if you look at the actual uh, physical state, if you stop the thinking, like with the sound of silence, you stop the thinking process and you go toward the actual energetic experience that the emotion has triggered off. Stay with that. And you begin to see that how you, if you think about it from the way, from your habit pattern, then you, you it creates a, an endless cycle of, of uh, suffering and problems and seemingly hopeless, a kind of despair around one's emotional habit. But if you if you begin to trust in this awareness and be able to see that this emotion is a mental object, even though it says, me, 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 it's, but it's still an object. Me, me, me is still an object. That which knows, that which is aware, is not me, me, me. It's a pure attention, pure awareness. And it's learning to to rest in that, to trust in that, that you uh, see the path or the way of the Eightfold Path comes from that kind of understanding. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening.